Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. October is just one week old, and the carnage on Wall Street has already begun. I wonder if the October complacency is starting to be shaken a bit uh, with the down move that we've seen. Now, the Dow Jones is not down very much. In fact, it barely fell on the week, but the S&P was down about 1%, but the NASDAQ was down more than 3%. On the week, the catalyst is rising interest rates, which, of course, the markets have been ignoring up until, I would say, yesterday afternoon when all of a sudden somebody started to worry about the markets. Or maybe it was Wednesday afternoon that we had a bit of a turn. But the big declines happened on Thursday and then again today. And the declines are not really big. I mean, certainly not by the standards of an October crash. But we still have several weeks left uh, for there to be a big down move in October. And, of course, we had a week Friday, a week Thursday. That's exactly what we had in October of 1987, which led to Black Monday. And remember, the backdrop there was rising interest rates. We have interest rates rising now. Of course, they're not nearly as high as they were back then. But the percentage-wise is probably even higher 
given where we're starting from. But of course, the economy is much more highly leveraged now than it was in 1987. And it's actually far more vulnerable to a rate shock now than it was then. Of course, back then, people were worried about rising trade deficits. They're even bigger now than they were back then. In fact, we got the trade deficit out today uh, for August. Uh, Another jump uh, following the jump that we had in July. I think it was the biggest increase now in six months. But imports are rising. Exports are falling. It's bad news on trade. People were worried about trade back in 1987. They're not smart enough to worry about it now, but they should. The trade deficit probably more important today than it was back then. Not only that it's larger, but we now have a trade war. That was not the case back in 1987. Of course, the dollar had been falling in 1987. That was a concern. The dollar is not falling yet. But the emphasis is on yet. I believe we are going to get the trifecta. It's not just going to be the bond market that's going to be falling. It's going to be the dollar that's going to be falling. And the stock market is going to fall for the same reasons it fell back in 1987, except now it should fall a lot more, uh, given the fact that the problems that everybody is ignoring are so much worse. But let me begin this podcast by talking about the jobs report that came out earlier today. You know, that is one of the most uh, hyped up uh, economic numbers that comes out and everybody is awaiting it. And today they were looking for about 180,000 jobs being created. And the actual number, at least so far, was 134,000. So it's a big miss, except they went back and revised the prior month up from 201 all the way up to 270. And then they tacked on about 10 or 15,000 to the month before that. So if you throw in the revisions, then it really wasn't a miss. And then, of course, everybody was willing to throw away this number because of the hurricanes, saying, well, because of the hurricanes, there was a big drop in employment, in leisure and hospitality. And so, therefore, we can ignore this low number. It's actually strong number, evidencing that the economy continues to grow. Wages continue to rise, you know, up 0.3%. Again, people are talking about this as, oh, great, Uh, wages are finally going up. They are going up, but they're just not going up as fast as the price of other things. I mean, look at oil prices. We actually almost got to $77 a barrel this week. We got to $66.90 something, I think. Oil prices pulled back a little bit, uh, and they ended up closing, though, still um, above 74 at 74.32. That's up about a dollar on the week. Despite the big sell-off in the stock market, oil held firm. And despite the fact that the dollar was firm, again, if oil prices are this strong when the dollar is also strong, then imagine what's going to happen to oil prices when the dollar weakens. So the increase in wages is not enough to keep people's Uh, economic heads above water because the cost of living is rising faster than their paychecks. That's why we saw the big surge in consumer credit today. Consumer credit jumped about 20 billion, 20.1 billion. They were looking for, I think, 14 or 15 billion. Uh, Credit card debt, student loans, auto loans, all new record high amount of debt that consumers 
are, are taking on. So clearly their jobs are not adequate to cover the cost of living. That's why they're having to borrow so much money to make ends meet. And of course, the cost of borrowing that money is going up and it's going to continue to rise. And I'm going to get to that topic in more detail after I wrap up talking about the jobs numbers. But anyway, the one number that grabbed all the headlines is the unemployment number. The official unemployment number dropped from 3.9 to 3.7. Now, that was even a bigger drop than people had forecast. They were looking for 3.8. And the last time we had a number this low, it was 1969. And so all the headlines are we have the lowest rate of unemployment since 1969. And I'm sure Donald Trump is going to be talking about that as well, uh, patting themselves on the back for uh, how great the economy is and that we have the lowest unemployment rate since 1969. But of course, Donald Trump doesn't seem to remember much about what he was saying as a candidate. You know, now that we're talking about how important memory is and what, you know, what is and is not remembered. I mean, you're talking about remembering stuff you were saying less than two years ago. I'm not talking about 35 years ago while you were drunk. In fact, Donald Trump said he's never even had anything to drink. So what explains his lack of memory? Because when he was a candidate, he correctly pointed out that these numbers were meaningless because we no longer measure unemployment the way we did. So it's an apples to oranges comparison. In fact, it's not even apples to oranges. It's apples to refrigerators. I mean, they're not even in the same category because back in 1969, if you were working part-time, but you really wanted to work full-time, in fact, if you spend most of your time looking for a full-time job while you were working a part-time job, you were still considered unemployed. In fact, the reason that the U6 number jumped up to 7.5% this month, which was an increase, right, as the official unemployment rate decreased, was because there was a surge in involuntary part-time employment during the month. Now, back in 1969, those people would have been considered unemployed. But in 2018, they're not. And so that's why the comparison is meaningless. But probably a more important difference, and I have spoken about this in prior podcasts, is the discouraged workers who are included in the U6 number and who used to be included in the official number back in 1969 are excluded from the official number today. So the people who have given up looking for work, but they're still unemployed and they would work if they thought they could find a job, but they've given up all hope. Those people are not considered unemployed. But even in the U6 number, and a lot of people don't appreciate this because the U6 number does capture some of those people, but just the tip of the iceberg because U6 only counts you as unemployed if you're discouraged for up to one year. So once you have been discouraged from looking for work for more than a year, then you don't even make it in the U6. So you've got a lot of long-term, structurally unemployed people who have completely given up looking for work, and they haven't looked for work in two years, three years, five years, 10 years. All of these people were included in the official unemployment statistic back in 1969. None of those people are included today. They're not even included in the U6 number that is at 7.5%.
So the real unemployment rate, if you want to compare apples to apples between now and 1969, it's way above 10%. I don't know where it is. You remember when Donald Trump was a candidate, he was saying 20%, 30%, 40%. Look, I doubt it's that high, but I know it's somewhere north of 10%. And maybe Donald Trump knows it too. I don't know whether he's just conveniently has amnesia, I think it's more his marketing strategy. He knows damn well that these numbers are fake and he doesn't care. Either he was lying as a candidate or he's lying as president. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he was honest and sincere about these numbers when he was running for office. And now he's just making it up because he wants to pretend everything is great just because he's president. But this is not going to work. This is going to blow up in his face when this whole house of cards economy comes tumbling down. In fact, when you look at how everybody is greeting the increase in interest rates, because I was watching, you know, financial television today as rates are rising and the yields, you know, close near the highs of the week. On the 10-year, we closed at 3.225, uh, not quite three and a quarter, but almost up there. I mean, to me, this is a huge technical breakout. I've talked about this on earlier podcasts when I was looking technically at the bond market and how weak the bond market looked and how strong, you know, the yields looked. On the 30-year, the 30-year closed just below 3.4. The intraday high was 3.424. We closed at 3.395. I think we can easily be at 3.5 by next week. And maybe 4, 4%, 4.5%. I mean, we are going much higher because if you look at a chart, there's nothing but air. I mean, we have a long way to go, especially when you consider how low we're starting from. But all these pundits that were on television today trying to you know, rationalize this, everybody kept saying that rates are rising for the right reasons, right? So A, because rates are going up for the right reasons, we don't have to worry because, you know, it's good. Well, first of all, they're wrong. Rates are going up for the wrong reasons. But even if they were correct, right, even if the reason rates are going up is because we have a strong economy and every, after all, we want a strong economy. And so therefore we have to accept higher interest rates as a natural consequence of a strong economy, even if that were the case, even if the economy were strong and that is why rates were going up, the bottom line is Americans are too broke to afford those higher rates. It's everybody. It's individual households, it's corporations, it's the government, and not just the federal government, but local governments, state governments. Everybody loaded up on debt when interest rates were low, right? People say, oh, take advantage of this, right? You're a fool if you don't go out and borrow money. Look how cheap it is, right? I used to say, look, just because alcohol is free doesn't mean you keep on drinking because what's going to happen to you, right? Well, you might black out or worse, right? So this is the problem. We binged on all this a free alcohol or cheap alcohol, but it's worse than alcohol. It was narcotics. It was heroin or, you know, heavier drugs than that, right? Just because drugs are free doesn't mean you keep doing them because obviously they're going to do damage and that's what's happened. So we've built this so-called strong economy on a foundation of cheap money. So if the economy is strong because interest rates are super low and if interest rates go up, well, now the economy can no longer be strong because that shaky foundation that you built the economy on collapses and then the whole house of cards comes tumbling down with it. So even if you're right, 
And even if, hey, the economy is strong and that's why interest rates are rising, well, now that they rose, it ain't going to be strong anymore because it's really not strength. It was a bubble. The economy was a big bubble and the air was the cheap money. And now the air is coming out, and so the bubble has to deflate. In fact, if you go back to the very rationale that the central bankers gave for their monetary policy, for lowering interest rates, for quantitative easing, they said, we are lowering interest rates and buying bonds in order to cause asset prices, real estate, and stocks to go up. That's why we're doing it. We're doing it to create a wealth effect. We want people to be richer. We want people to feel wealthier so they'll go out and spend and borrow. And so we are lowering interest rates and we are buying bonds so that we can artificially push up asset prices to create the wealth effect or phony wealth and make people feel better. That's what they said. Well, if lowering interest rates and quantitative easing causes asset prices to go up, wouldn't the opposite cause asset prices to go down, right? It just stands to reason, cut rates, asset prices go up. All right, raise rates, asset prices come down. If we print money and buy up bonds and do quantitative easing, we make asset prices go up. If we reverse the process and do quantitative tightening and sell bonds, right, asset prices have to go down. This isn't rocket science. I mean, anybody could do this math. The thing is, you've got everybody on Wall Street denying what is obvious. I mean, you can't have it both ways. Rising rates can't be good and falling rates can't be good. Quantitative easing can't be good and quantitative tightening can't be good. Right? It's These are opposites. So, But in any bubble, all it's always rationalized. It's always this time it's different. We never have to worry about rising interest rates, even though rising interest rates have pricked every recovery that we've had. And even though this one is more vulnerable, given the enormity of the debt that has been rung up during this so-called expansion, which is the longest on record or now the second longest on record, and it's engendered the longest bull market in stocks on record, it's because of a record amount of borrowing. So therefore, we are more vulnerable. We are more exposed to rising interest rates than we ever have at any point in history, including 2008, when our debt led to the financial crisis. Well, what is our debt going to lead to this time when we have a lot more of it and we have even less ability to service it? And remember, nobody was expecting the financial crisis in 2008, just like nobody's expecting this. So don't think that you know the uh, the establishment is going to be out there worried about it or warning about it. They're going to be as complacent as possible until they get blindsided by this and then claim that nobody could have seen it coming because it's impossible. It's a 100-year flood, except we have a 100-year flood, what, every 10 years or less? Right? How many 100-year floods are you going to have before you start to question your understanding of, of floods? But to get back to the real reason that interest rates are rising and why this is so important is interest rates are rising because of inflation. Inflation is accelerating, or at least the, inf the effects of inflation, that prices and wages are rising as a result of 
inflation, the money that has already been created, not just here in the United States, but all around the world. And in fact, interest rates are rising every place. It's not something that's only happening in America. Rates are rising all around the world. Consumer prices are picking up all around the world. You know, Americans aren't the only ones that buy, buy oil. Everybody's buying oil. We unfortunately have to import oil still, and that makes the, the increase in the oil price that much worse. And we have to borrow money to afford it. But Prices are rising everywhere. Interest rates are prices. They're just the price of borrowing money. So just like inflation makes food prices go up and it makes energy prices go up, it also makes borrowing prices, the price of borrowing money go up. But also there's another element there, and this leads into inflation, is there is an inflation premium built in to interest rates. Because when you loan somebody money and they pay you back, the more inflation there is, the less real value you get when you're repaid. And the way you compensate for that is you make the borrower pay you interest to recoup the loss of purchasing power. So obviously, the lower the expected rate of inflation, well, then the less I have to charge to recoup what I lose through inflation. But as the inflation psychology changes, as lenders begin to anticipate more future inflation, then they have to charge a higher rate to recoup that, especially if they're paying taxes, because governments often tax you on your nominal yield, not your real yield. So the yield has to go up even more so that you can recoup after taxes uh, what you are losing to inflation. And that's why I was out there. I'm one of the few people that said this, and I said it often on my podcast, that I did not think the yield curve was going to invert. You had all these people out there that were worried that we were going to have an inverted yield curve, and that was going to cause the recession. I still think there's going to be a recession, but I don't think, and I didn't think the yield curve would invert. In fact, I thought it would steepen, and that is what is happening, and it's going to get a whole lot steeper. In fact, when the Fed ultimately starts cutting rates, which it's going to do, long rates may continue to rise, even though the Federal Reserve is cutting them on the short end, taking them down to zero. So the yield curve is going to get a lot steeper uh, once the Fed you know, actually changes monetary policy. But a reason that I believed that the yield curve was going to steepen is because of the increasing inflation premiums that I believed were going to be baked into the yield curve. And that is what's happening. And that is not rates going up for the right reason. They're going up for a very bad reason. As much as everybody wants to say that inflation is good and we want inflation and our goal is inflation, inflation is very bad, especially if you're a bondholder. Inflation is the worst thing for a bondholder because it's destroying the value of your bond. And now that people are beginning to appreciate that we're going to have more inflation, rates are going to go up. And one of the reasons that we know we're going to have more inflation is because we have more debt. Because inflation comes from debt because the government has to borrow money. And when the private sector doesn't supply it, the Federal Reserve prints money, quantitative easing. And we have record budget deficits, record trade deficits that are only going up. And as I said on my last couple of podcasts, we are producing these unprecedented record debt numbers during peacetime and prosperity. Normally, when the government has to spend a lot more money is when we're at war or when we're in recession. We're at neither, at least officially, we're not in recession. So imagine what happens when we're actually in a recession or if some type of war uh, breaks out. I mean, you never know. Uh, where is all this money going to come from? It is going to be massive 
money printing on an unprecedented scale, much bigger than what was unprecedented in 2008. And so that is going to put tremendous downward pressure on bonds. It's supply and demand. That's going to cause the Federal Reserve, when they have to reverse course and do more quantitative easing, they're going to have to print a tremendous amount of money in order to buy up those bonds. That is going to drive the value of bonds down because private investors are going to realize that they're getting ripped off. Now, of course, they don't know that yet. I mean, this thing is just getting started. But when that takes off, when we really start to see the bond market coming down, and of course, that is what brings on the recession, right? You have all these people that are so complacent saying that, well, you know, we don't really have to worry about inflation because if it does get too bad and then, you know, the economy eventually goes into recession like it normally does, eventually we have a business cycle, well, then the recession is going to take care of the inflation for us. That is the myth. That is the Keynesian misunderstanding of inflation and where it comes from. If we have a downturn in the economy and a pickup in unemployment, that is not going to mean that consumer prices are going to fall. In fact, given the position that we're in right now, that is simply going to stoke the inflation fire. The recession is going to be the catalyst for making the inflation rate go up, not down. And why is that? Well, what most people like to focus on is the demand side of a recession. And they're going to say, well, you know, if people are unemployed and there's less demand, well, people aren't going to buy as much stuff. And so prices will go down because there won't be as much demand. That's true. But you have to look at the entire picture. You have to look at the supply curve as well as the demand curve because recessions impact supply, right? If there is less production, during a recession, if the economy is not producing as much goods and services because people are no longer employed productively. So if the supply of goods goes down along with the demand for goods, then the price doesn't go down. In fact, if supply goes down faster than demand, then the price could rise even as the demand is falling. But what is the real wild card is going to be what happens to the dollar and what happens to imports. Because a lot of the supply comes from abroad. A lot of the products that Americans buy are shipped here from our trading partners. You know, Donald Trump said, oh, the rest of the world, it's such a privilege to trade with America, right? It's not a privilege. It's our privilege because we're getting stuff for nothing. Our trading partners have been dumb enough to vendor finance us, even though we can never repay the money they've already loaned us, let alone the new money they're loaning us so we can keep on buying stuff that we can't afford. But what is going to happen in this next recession? The dollar is going to tank. And when it does, nobody is going to be there to rescue it because we don't have any friends anymore when it comes to Forex market. I think the world is going to be happy. There's going to be a collective sigh of relief when the dollar starts to tank. Nobody is going to fight a currency war to try to keep the dollar from falling. So the dollar is going to fall. And what does that mean? That means the cost of all these stuff that we import is going to skyrocket. In fact, it's going to be so expensive that it's not going to come in here. We're not going to be able to afford to import it. So now the supply of goods for sale collapses. And so what happens to the price of what we have left? It goes up. So we're going to have a recession and inflation at the same time, stagflation. That's what I've been talking about. That's what we're going to experience. So anybody who is out there thinking, hey, don't worry, you know, because even if uh, inflation picks up, you know, the market's going to provide a natural break as we'll eventually have a recession and it's going to rein it back in. No, 
It's the recession that's going to be the catalyst for more inflation because also what is going to happen in the next recession. In the next recession, the budget deficit skyrocket because the government doesn't collect as much in tax revenue because people are unemployed, right? Companies are no longer profitable. So now they're not getting that revenue. Think about the revenue they're going to lose from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which have been sending checks uh, to the government all these years. They're now going to start sending bills. I'll talk about the housing market uh, up next, but uh, there's going to be a big loss of revenue as they have to start bailing out those enterprises again. So government expenditures are going to go way up. Their tax receipts are going to go down. More people collecting unemployment, more people collecting uh, food stamps or disability. And so this, the budget deficit skyrockets. And now the Federal Reserve has to create all this money. They have to print money to buy up all these bonds because the government's not collecting the tax revenue and they have more expenditures. And so now the budget deficits are two, three trillion dollars a year. That is massive money printing. So we're printing all this money right, as the supply of goods to buy with that money is collapsing. So that is massive inflation. I don't care how many people are unemployed, right, whatever they buy is going to be a lot more expensive, whether they're employed or not. So this is a, a, a massive uh, economic crisis that we are heading for, and people are oblivious. I mean, getting back to the housing market, and I've been talking about this on the podcast, and all the home building stocks, again, hit new 52-week lows again today, getting obliterated. They were already deep in bear market territory, and now they're venturing deeper into bear market territory. How can people be so oblivious to the ticking time bomb in the housing market when it was the housing market bomb that blew up 10 years ago in 2008? It's the same thing happening all over again, and nobody cares. I mean, look at what's happening to mortgage rates. I mean, now mortgage rates are above 5%. They had been in the threes for a long time. And in fact, more importantly, look at the five-year arms. I mean, a lot of people were buying five-year arms instead of 30-year fixed, right? A lot of these guys are going to see their five-year arms you know, reset because the five years is up. And now the interest rate is going to reset to whatever the prevailing rate is. So I think you're going to see a lot of people who are now going to have two to three percentage points more in, in interest on their existing home loans. So somebody that might have had three and a quarter, now they could have five and a half or maybe even six, you know, in a few months. Where's that money going to come from? I mean, if you're a typical person and maybe you have a, a $200,000, $300,000, dollars mortgage, depending on where you live, and if all of a sudden your monthly mortgage payment is $300,000, $500 a month more, I mean, if you're a typical American who is living paycheck to paycheck and doesn't even have 500 bucks extra for an emergency one month, how are you going to come up with it every single month? But, you know, it's not just your mortgage payment that's going up. Everything related to owning a home is getting more expensive. Your property taxes are going up, and in many cases, they're no longer deductible, right? Your insurance costs are going up. Your maintenance costs are going up. And a lot of people, too, who bought houses five years ago, and they had a, uh, a five-year arm, what happens to houses after five years? Things start going wrong. I mean, maybe you bought a house. Now, all of a sudden, the roof is leaking. The air conditioners break. I mean, all kinds of things happen on houses. They need maintenance. Where's the money going to come from? So what's going to happen when homeowners 
are burdened with these soaring costs that dwarf whatever tax cuts they were able to get. And of course, if you lose your job, the tax cut means nothing. Because if you have no income, then what difference does it make what the income tax rate is? Because it doesn't apply to you anyway. But when these homeowners start to see these big increases in their costs, what are they going to do? Well, number one, we know from experience that when the cost of buying homes go up, the value of homes goes down. Right. That is an obvious thing, just like bonds. Right. Bond prices fall when interest rates go up. Well, housing prices fall when interest rates go up. If you didn't know that uh, but you learned it in 2008. That's exactly what happened. You've got a record. I pointed this out on my last podcast that the supply of unsold new homes is the largest it's been since February of 2009. And that was in the depths of the Great Recession. And we already have the same supply now. And supposedly everything is great. So the supply is going to keep building. People couldn't afford to buy new homes before we just had this rate shock. So obviously those expensive homes that were unaffordable are even more unaffordable now. So the only way to clear the market when you have a glut of supply is for the price to come down. Now, of course, prices coming down are a good thing, right? If you're in the market for a house and prices come way down, well, that's good, right? Because you can buy the house for less money, except a lot of Americans already own a house. And when the price of houses goes down, well, the value of their largest asset goes down. And for a lot of people, that's their only asset. And they go, it goes from an asset to a liability. So what happens when homeowners are upside down on their mortgages and they're faced with skyrocketing mortgage rates, they got maintenance problems, right? Taxes are going up. What do they do? Well, they have two choices. They can stop spending money on everything else. They can stop going out. They can stop buying stuff. They can hunker down and they can take all their money and spend it on their home, on servicing their debt and paying these costs, right? Or they could just stop making their mortgage payment and wait for the bank to kick them out. And we know from experience, it could take years. You don't actually have to send the key. You just stop making your mortgage payments and it could take three, four, five years before the bank actually kicks you out. But of course, that creates a massive problem for the banking institutions, right? For the, for the banks, if all of a sudden their mortgages are delinquent. But to the extent that people, you know, don't do that, that they make their payments, well, if they're not spending money other places in order to afford to service their mortgage and you know keep their home from falling apart, well, that has implications throughout the economy because now that money is not getting spent, right? That money, if, if I'm having to spend money on my house and, and, and I stop spending on other things, what happens to employment in those areas of the economy that are now starved for customers because people are now not shopping or not doing things because they had to spend money on on interest. So you have a loss of employment in those sectors. But of course, you have a big loss of employment in the housing sector, right? If people aren't buying, if new homes aren't selling, then people are going to stop building them especially when the cost of building them is going up and tariffs are making that worse, but affordability is going down. So home building comes to an end, which means so do all the jobs in home building and all the ancillary jobs that are related uh, to the housing industry. Same thing has been happening in the auto industry. That's why we were hitting new lows in the auto stocks. Sales are going down. People buy cars with debt and that debt is getting more expensive. Americans buy everything with debt. And all that debt, all these chickens are coming home to roost. And so far, nobody cares. Everybody is oblivious. I mean, the whole country is fixated on the Supreme Court and, and whether Brett Kavanaugh 
you know, had too much to drink when when he was in college and whether he may or may not have sexually assaulted anybody. Meanwhile, we have real serious stuff going on uh, in the economy that's potentially finally going to blow up. And you've got Donald Trump, he's out there claiming credit. Everything is great. The economy is booming like it's never boomed before. And it's all my fault. He is accepting responsibility at the worst possible time. But, you know, from an investment point of view, you know, I remember, and this was very frustrating, but again, 10 years ago, when we were on the verge of the 2008 financial crisis, People were sending money to me hand over fist. I mean, I couldn't even stop it. Right? There's so much money that was coming in uh, to my firm. Uh, people were opening up accounts every day. I don't know, 10, 20, 30 accounts would come in in the morning and it'd be all these people that would fill out their accounts uh, online. Of course, my book was out, uh, The Real Crash or, or Crash Proof, How to Profit from the Coming Economic Collapse. So all these people were sending money uh, into my strategy right before the 2008 financial crisis because there were a lot of people that were worried that something bad was going to happen. Flash forward to today, nobody's worried. Some stuff even worse is going to happen. And rather than opening accounts, clients are closing accounts. Every day, a couple of accounts close. It's the opposite of what was happening 10 years ago. But remember, 10 years ago, when everybody was sending me money, gold was at a record high. The dollar was at a record low. The dollar had been falling uh, for six, seven years. Gold had been rising for the same amount of time. So people were at least worried enough about the economy that they were selling the dollar and buying gold. And when we got the financial crisis, buy the rumor, sell the fact, you know, people ended up reversing those positions. You know, I made a tremendous amount of money uh, between 2001 and 2008 as the dollar was falling as gold was rising. It was great for gold stocks and emerging markets. Oil prices, oil was at a record high. It had gone from under $20 a barrel to $140, $150. We had a lot of oil stocks. So all those stocks went way up. They, of course, came crashing down in 2008. The money that I made for people on the collapse of the, uh, of the financial crisis was in 07 because we had clients who were short the subprime market. That was a trade that paid off. Unfortunately, just a small percentage of my clients actually qualified for the hedge fund and, and shorted subprime. And a lot of people didn't even understand the trade. It seemed very complicated. So, you know, it was a small part of my book that actually got into it, even though we recommended it pretty much to everybody. Uh, not everybody was suitable or able to do it. But when the financial crisis hit, all of the foreign stocks that we had and the gold stocks went down because they had gone up so much in anticipation of the crisis. When the crisis happened, they all collapsed. Now, there was a huge recovery in 09, 10, 011, but then everything started to change where the U.S. market started to go up and the dollar started to go up and gold started to go down and oil started to go down. But the, the, the important point is that right now, we are on the verge of a much bigger crisis than the one we had in, in 2008. I mean, far bigger. This crisis is going to be a sovereign debt crisis, a currency crisis, and the recession is going to be far deeper and, and it's going to be far more disruptive and more painful to average Americans than what we had 10 years ago. But it's the opposite, right? Instead of sending money to me to prepare for it, clients who had prepared for it years ago were deciding that it's no longer uh, worth uh, uh, planning for. We don't. I don't. I'm cashing in the insurance policy. I'm no longer worried about the U.S. economy. People who have been worried about it for 10 years are no longer worried. They have now taken the bait. They fell into the trap themselves. Uh, they've joined this party 
as it's just about to end because here we're on the cusp of another financial crisis and nobody's worried. Gold's down. The dollar is up. So now if people were surprised by 08, they're going to even be more surprised now. But if all the speculators who were long gold in 2008 are short gold now, what are they going to do? They don't have gold to sell. They have to buy back what they've already sold. If all the speculators are long the dollar, well, now what are they going to do? They're going to dump the dollar. So, you know, fundamentally, we are in a much better place than we were 10 years ago because we are about to have a major crisis and the dollar is, is so high. If you, you know, if you got out of the dollar in 2008 because you were worried about a crisis, you got out of the dollar at the lows. You bought into gold at the highs. You can put this hedge on now. You can position yourself for this crisis. And this time, I think it's going to be an immediate payday. I think my strategy is going to pay off immediately. In 2008, when the crisis hit, right, foreign stocks, because of the dollar, went down more than domestic stocks. This time, I think it's going to be the opposite. This time, I think the crisis is going to be confined to the United States. The crisis is going to liberate. It's going to free up the rest of the world. The rest of the world is being bogged down by the strength of the dollar and the idea that it's going to have to subsidize massive U.S. government borrowing, massive U.S. government debt. When the world is relieved to discover that the Fed's going to buy all that debt, that they're going to do QE4, that they're not going to have to prop up the U.S. economy, then their economies are going to take off. The emerging markets are going to take off. And as prices go up for us, prices are going to go down for everybody else. And you know this privilege right, that Trump thinks that the world has in trading with us. It's America that has the privilege and that privilege is going to come to an end. Now, I just want to talk a little bit, not much again, about what's going on with Brett Kavanaugh. It finally looks like they've concluded the FBI investigation and they found nothing. And, you know, I know the Democrats were upset because they didn't interview Judge Kavanaugh. They didn't interview Dr. Ford. About what? They were already questioned by uh, the Senate. I mean, if they had any questions, they they were able to ask them. So why do they need to repeat uh, their same uh, questions? In fact, I think it would have been embarrassing for Dr. Ford uh, to question her again and just blow more holes in her story because it's so con- inconsistent, right? When she's every time she tells the story, it's a little bit different. Uh, so the fact that the FBI didn't question her probably leaves her with a little bit more credibility. So maybe they just wanted to, you know, not. Um, damage her even more. And so they just kind of, you know, left it alone. But what they did do is they chased down these so-called leads. They wanted to talk to the other potential witnesses to try to see if they could find any cooperation of, uh, of Dr. Ford's story. And of course, they couldn't corroborate it because it never happened. And they also tried to find examples where Brett Kavanaugh lied and they couldn't. I mean, he didn't even lie under oath. I mean, people were trying to make a big deal out of the fact that he didn't admit to drinking enough, that he kind of downplayed how much he drank. I don't think he did. You know, to me, he was probably a typical college kid who was a typical drinker. I mean, because if he was drinking excessively, I mean, you can't be that much of an alcoholic and do that well and also, you know, be involved in sports. But can you drink on weekends? Right. Sure. Can you drink over the summer? Sure. Everybody did it. He wasn't the only one. But, you know, one of the things that's really been bothering me, though, about this whole thing is now you see a lot of these women 
who are basically almost saying it doesn't even matter whether he's innocent or guilty at this point. It's, it's just about the cause, right? It's about the Me Too movement. And so we need to sacrifice this guy on the altar of the Me Too movement. And, and men ought to just, you know, even if men are going to get accused falsely, well, it's about time that right women have been exploited for so long and have been abused for so long that we need to turn the tables, almost like reverse discrimination, right? Women have been afraid to speak out. And so now it, whenever we speak out, we have to be believed because we weren't believed. And even if that means some innocent men have to uh, suffer, well, it's, hey, it's their time, right? Hey, we we as women, you know, we, we put up for it long enough and now it's time for the men. So, you know, th- this is a very dangerous uh, psychology of, you know, two wrongs make a right. Even if what the women are saying is true, it is not justified doing the same thing to the men. Two wrongs never make a right. And, and finally, one thing I just don't get is all of these women now who claim to have been sexually assaulted. And again, some of them probably were. I don't believe they all were, but they're all claiming to be survivors of sexual assault. Survivors? I mean, really? I mean, this is not attempted murder. I mean, most of these sexual assaults, from the way they're described, I mean, it's not like the women just made it out with their lives. I mean, sure, I can say they've got assaulted, and I'm not defending it or belittling it, and that it wasn't meaningful at the time. And, you know, I am not advocating sexual assault nor minimizing the impact it has. But survivor? I mean, these are not life-threatening events. I mean, sometimes they could be, right? Violent rape, sure, yeah. I mean, sometimes, I mean, a woman could be raped to the point where maybe she was going to die and she actually survived. But when you talk about survivors, I mean, it reminds me of like a Holocaust survivor, right? Talking about, hey, I survived the Holocaust. I'm a Holocaust survivor. Yes, that was a survival uh, thing because a lot of people didn't survive the Holocaust. A lot of people died in the Holocaust. And a lot of people almost died in the Holocaust. And people who survived that have been living a lifetime of memories. You can imagine the horrors that people uh, witnessed and went through who survived the Holocaust. So those are survivors. But for everybody who claims to have been sexually assaulted to say, I'm a survivor, and we believe survivors, no matter what they say. Look, if you were groped by Al Franken, You're not a survivor. That's no big deal. Is it inappropriate? Sure. But is it a life or death situation just because he put his hand on your body and you didn't want him to, right? You didn't survive anything, right? You know, somebody inappropriately touched you and that's it. And you brush it off or you slap him in the face or you yell at him and you move on. I mean, some of these events basically, you know, could be positives in that women learn from them and, and it improves their character and they they build on the experience. I mean, everyone is like, oh, Dr. Ford, I mean, this thing ruins her life. We don't want women to think that if you get into a situation like this, which is unfortunate, and I'm hoping to try to encourage women not to get into that situation and trying to encourage men not to put them. But you don't want women to think if some guy, you know, goes a little too far and And you get assaulted, not raped, you get assaulted. It doesn't have to ruin your life. It doesn't have to haunt you for 36 years. It doesn't have to cripple your life. It doesn't mean that you have to put a second door in your house 30 years later because you're afraid someone's going to come in and assault you and you want to leave. We want to teach women to move on from these experiences, to grow, to get stronger, right? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so that's what we have to do. We have to empower 
our, our young women, not to make them feel that any type of sexual assault, no matter how minimal that assault is, is going to debilitate you for the rest of your life, that you can never recover, that you are a survivor, that you barely survived, and you should be you know, just rewarded for the fact that you were able to survive. We're not going to be judged on anything else that you've done. In fact, we're going to excuse everything that you can't accomplish because, hey, after all, you know, you barely survived uh, this sexual assault. And so that excuses uh, your inability uh, to ever rise above that, to ever grow and and become more self-confident. This is the wrong message. But again, this is how uh, the, the women's movement, all about having the government try to come in and and, and quotas, you know, we're seeing it in uh, California where you have to have these women on boards, this reverse discrimination, this two wrongs make a right, right? Uh, And affirmative action, all of this diminishes women. You know, there's a um, candidate running for president in Brazil, and they're, they're, they're referring to him as the Donald Trump of Brazil. And the elections are on Sunday. So we'll see what happens. But I was reading an article and the author was really making fun of this guy. And obviously it's a very liberal writer who's talking about why this guy is so crazy. And one of the things that he said that the reporter shows evidences how nuts he is, is that he thinks that women deserve to make less than men because they get pregnant. Now, I don't know you know, if he's taking him out of context, how he actually said it. But of course, that is true. It's not about what you deserve. It's about reality. Women choose to get pregnant and have babies and raise babies. That is not a sexist comment to make. And the fact that so many women interrupt their careers to have babies and raise babies, and then they go in and out of the workforce, and then they adjust their schedules to be more flexible so that they can both work and rear their kids, obviously, you're going to lose some of your income. I mean, you can't expect a woman who is trying to juggle raising kids and then working not 100% with a guy who is not sacrificing any of his work, who is allowing his wife to raise the kids and who is devoting all of his time 100% to working, who is traveling and spending long hours, right? Obviously, that guy is going to earn more than a woman. And so a statement that women make less than men or one reason is because they get pregnant and have babies, that is true. And if you're going to say, well, we have to give women who are having babies the same income as men who are not caring for the kid, how are you going to do that? I mean, that would be forcing much higher wage. It'd be like a minimum wage. It'd be like, well, you have to overpay women. You have to pay them for work that they're not doing. You see, when their salary is flexible, when a woman is able to go to her boss and say, look, I don't want to work full time now. I want, I don't want to go out at 100% because I, I really want to spend time with my kids. So let's work out a way that I can have the best of both worlds. I can spend time with my kids, but still have a job. That can happen, but you're not going to get as much money. That's the trade-off. If you tell your boss, hey, I don't want to work as hard as the guys. I want to spend half my time with my kids, but I demand you pay me the same as someone that's giving it you know, his all. You're not going to have a job. So all this stuff is going to backfire if we're trying to force employers to pay women who want more flexibility and want to spend time with their raising their kids the same as men who aren't asking for that kind of flexibility. 
Now, you can say, well, why is it the women who are taking care of the kids? Hey, have that argument with God. That's Mother Nature. And most women want to take care of the kids. I mean, is it possible that you can have a Michael Keaton, Mr. Mom? A mom can stay home and take care of the kids and the wife can be working? Yeah, that's possible. And I'm sure that happens. But it's not the norm. That's the thing. When you're looking at the numbers, right, the total numbers, you're looking at the norm. Sure, there are some women that do that, and there are some women that make more money than men, and there are women that don't have kids. There are women that never get married, and they devote 100% of their efforts to their career. And I'm sure if you can study those women versus men, you probably won't find a wage gap at all. The reason you find it is because women make different choices than men, and if a politician has the guts to acknowledge that, then that's not something that we should condemn I mean, we need more politicians that are willing to speak the truth and not just worry how political correctness is going to be spun to try to make him into some kind of a sexist or make you into a racist. If you speak the truth and you recognize reality, you don't want to live in this liberal fantasy. Uh, we, we have to reward that. But unfortunately, that type of uh, honesty gets punished and it, it leads to socialism. It leads to all sorts of economic problems. And we are going to experience those problems firsthand here in the United States. We'll see what happens. Obviously, make sure and listen to these podcasts. Uh, you know, a, a, a down Friday in October, markets extremely overvalued, interest rates going up, dollar potentially going down, trade deficits exploding, budget deficits exploding, very reminiscent of 1987. Uh, only the problems are a lot bigger, and so the fallout could be a lot bigger. Remember, the 1987 stock market crash was another buying opportunity. It's not likely to be that lucky the next time. The Fed was able to bail everybody out of the last two uh, market collapses, 2001, 2008. As I've been saying over and over again, I don't think it's going to happen. They're not going to make it a hat trick. It's not going to be the third time is the charm. It's going to be three strikes, you're out which is why it is so important uh, to have this trade right, why people should be opening up accounts now. They should be sending more money into their accounts if they already have them. And just, I think, backing up the truck at this point and having as much money as possible in on this trade. And again, you know, I'm going to be in New Orleans um, early November, the first, wait, November uh, 1st through the through the 4th. I mentioned that before. If you haven't already signed up for the um, the conference, Go to the New Orleans Conference website. Make sure to use uh, my promotion code SHIFT. You'll get a discount off the registration. It's probably going to be a very, very interesting conference this year, especially if we end up having a big decline in the month of October. It could be a, a very well-timed conference. A lot of big speakers other than me, a lot of interesting stuff, especially it's, of course, it's been known as a gold conference. And maybe this is going to be time uh, for gold to shine. We're going to get the next big up leg. As I said, the last time we had all the hedge funds short Gold was under 300, and it went on a 10-year rise to 1,900. This time, it's starting to rise from around 1,200. I think percentage-wise, the rise can be as big, if not even bigger. And I think the stocks in that sector are even cheaper now than they were then. And so there'll be a lot of those companies uh, presenting at the uh, New Orleans conference. So good opportunity for people to you know get some firsthand knowledge on those investments. Meanwhile, the podcast next week will probably be interesting. Uh, so I'll make sure and keep them coming. Bye for now. Thank you.